peekaboo. I see you. Do you see me or are you listening to me? Are you watching me cover my eye and say peekaboo? Top story you'd think would be the Oscars. Loved them. We're going to get to it. But how do you not start with the Dodgers Padres? While you were sleeping, because you shut off the Oscars because they were going too long in your mind, which they didn't, you may not have realized that there was a very compelling baseball game going on that saw the San Diego Padres come back from a six-run deficit in the seventh inning, tie the game, win the game in extra innings on the old stolen base, sacrifice fly, Tati scores. Padres win. Why is that show worthy? Why am I playing a child's game when it was just a regular extra inning victory for the San Diego Padres? Here's what went on during this series, and it was something, folks. Trevor Bauer was signed by the Dodgers. You know that. He's the highest paid player in baseball. Signed that three-year deal with the Dodgers. It's really a two-year deal with the player option for a third year. You know that Tatis signed the deal, the 13 or 14, $340 million deal with the Padres. You know the Padres signed Machado a couple years ago, $30 million a year. You know the Dodgers are supposed to be the best team in baseball. The Padres traded for Hugh Darvish and Blake Snell. The Padres got a no-hitter from Joe Musgrove already. They've played seven games in the last 10 days. You know all this. You also know that people are saying this is now the greatest rivalry in baseball. Greatest rivalry after 10 games, seven games. They're going to play 19. Players saying it's only April, but this is very important. Very important. We never had an April series, not one time, no matter who we were playing, no matter how favored we were, no matter whether or not we were trying to chase the Braves or the Phillies or the Mets, we never would say to our players, this is a critical series. We've got to show them who's boss. The media would call it that. The media would build things up like that. You don't do that in the clubhouse because it's way too risky because there's so much downside. If the Dodgers win five out of seven, you're deflated. You feel as though, wow, maybe we can't play with these guys. If the Padres win five out of seven, do you say, wow, we've got their number. We've got them. The Padres are generally a 500 team right now. They've got pitching. They've got bullpen. They've got position players. They've got an overperforming team in their division named the San Francisco Giants. They've got a juggernaut of a team who over 162 games will be far better than they are. It's best just to play the games and move right along. That doesn't mean I don't like the shenanigans, and that doesn't mean I don't think that this type of match between the Padres and the Dodgers is not good for baseball. It is compelling. I loved it. I want to tell you a couple of things that happened. Peekaboo. We got a couple rules in baseball. Rule number one, don't bang garbage cans. Rule number two, don't bang anything that you think could in any way upset anyone in another clubhouse or in your own clubhouse. Rule number three, if you're going to cheat to compete, make sure you know that the cameras are always on. Rule number four, don't ever be late. Rule number five, do not show up your teammate or your manager within camera range. A lesser known rule, but still important and does not ever need to be enforced because who does this 
is the peekaboo rule. When you watch baseball, watch the catcher before the catcher gives the sign to the pitcher. Every catcher in Major League Baseball is taught to do one thing, and they do it every time. If you're not watching on Nothing Personal with David Sampson YouTube channel, and you're just listening, then I don't know what to tell you. But my hand is in the catching position. I am putting my fingers between my legs, but my eyes are going up to the right-handed batter to the left, or they're going up toward the right to a left-handed batter. Before I put my fingers down, I am looking to make sure that the player batter is not looking at me. I want him looking at his looking at the pitcher. I want him looking at his third base coach or first base coach. I want him looking at the dugout. I want him looking at the sky. I want him looking at the ground for worms. I want him looking anywhere but my crotch. That is the rule of the catcher, N-C-L. And that's not Norwegian cruise lines. No crotch looking. So Fernando Tatis, apparently, was doing some CL and then hit a home run. So the question came out, was he cheating? Is that unfair? Is he going to get hit? What's Bauer going to say about it? What's Dave Roberts going to say about it? Well, Dave Roberts was less than happy. He was unwilling to confirm that Fernando Tatis engaged in CL. But he was willing to say if, in fact, there was some crotch looking, then there will be a price to be paid. You don't do it. You want to bang a trash can? Yeah, you shouldn't do that either. You want to try to steal signs? Go ahead. But don't look at my catcher's crotch. So Fernando Tatis rounds the bases. He does a little billionaire Conor McGregor strut, sort of making fun of Trevor Bauer. He covers his eye, running around the bases, making fun of the fact that Trevor Bauer would close one eye while pitching to the Padres during spring training. And we did have a wait to see about that, didn't we, Coca? That Trevor Bauer will never cover his eye during a regular season game. Never, ever, ever. So Trevor Bauer, two eyes open, pitched a game. Tatis got the best of him. Tatis had an amazing series. And for all of you Padres fans out there, and there are plenty of you who got into my Twitter at David P. Sampson, I'll tell you that saying, I can't believe the way you are critical of Fernando Tatis. I guess his shoulder's just fine, isn't it? What do you know? You're a failed executive with only one World Series ring. You don't know crap. Exclamation point. Laughing emoji. Napoleon emoji. You must have downloaded that separately. Let me clarify my point on Fernando Tatis's shoulder. He is a talented player who's played hundred and. I don't know, 65 games in the big leagues. Barely a full season. He's got nine errors. The most errors through 15 games of a season since 1983. He has a torn labrum in his non-throwing shoulder. And if you think that that is not impacting his fielding and his hitting, then you are just wrong. Even when an injury is impacting your hitting, that does not mean you will not be able to hit. There's something called Toradol. When you see his hand release off the bat, and I compliment him on an unbelievably majestic one-handed home run, I am not saying it because I don't want Tatis to succeed. I want him to be the face of baseball. He is good for baseball. He is a fun, interesting player who is going to be in a market that deserves to have a superstar and deserves to get a lot of attention. I hope he finishes his career in San Diego, and then he gets at least one ring. 
all of that is understood. The point that you missed is that his shoulder is not getting better by playing. It's getting worse. And you're being told he can't hurt it more. It's already slightly torn. The Padres are going to have to make a decision is what I said, and I'm sticking to it and saying it again. It is extremely unlikely that Fernando Tatis will be able to play a full season. We are in April, ladies and gents. April. You will not even remember this when we get to the pennant drive in September. Hey, do you remember when the Mariners were having such a great year? They were like five games over 500. Remember those San Francisco Giants? My God, they were good. Remember when the Yankees were 5-11? and 11? Memories of the way it used to be. I'm going to get Barbara here to sing a song for you folks. You're not going to remember this series with the Dodgers. What you're going to remember is where the Padres are and how Tatis is playing and whether he's playing. And there is no reason to believe that he's going to get anything other than less healthy as the grind of the season happens. What about Trevor Bauer? Am I annoyed with him? You guys seem to think that everything he does, I say, is wrong. I criticize everything he does. Trevor Bauer was talking about Fernando Tatis's one-eyed salute when he covered his eye. And he actually had a very interesting comment. He said, I'm all for it. I think it's important for the game to move in that direction instead of throwing at guys for showing emotion. I like that, Trevor, because you have to practice what you preach because you do the billionaire shuffle, the Conor McGregor shimmy when you strike guys out. You show up players all the time. When someone gets the better of you, you tip your cap, you let them show off, let them show you up, and you move on. That's right. But then Trevor Bauer got word that there could have been some CL, some crotch looking, and that he didn't like. He's got principles and rules, and this violated his principles and his rules. It's hard to know where the damn line is because the little sucker moves all the time, doesn't it? That was always the excuse I gave in school. How am I supposed to know I'm not supposed to do that? Every day, it's this, it's that. I perfected it with Giancarlo Stanton and his facial hair. Remember what I told you about his facial hair? He said, I'm just going to grow the patch, the soul patch, I think it's called, because every year you change your facial hair rules, David. So I'm just going to have it always the same way. And if I'm a violator one year and I'm in, in, in cahoots, that's not the word, Coca. If I'm in line with the rules in the next year, they just, you keep moving the line. Lines keep moving. I get it. I got so distracted, Coca. I don't know what I was talking about with the line still moving. The line of what players can do, the line of what's showing someone up, the line of what makes Trevor Bauer unhappy. Well, Trevor Bauer feels his line is when someone is doing some crotch looking. That's his line. So we went on his Instagram or his Twitter, and he said, don't do that, Fernando. Fernando's deceased responded, calm down, son. And then Trevor Bauer said, hey, if you want the sign, just ask your daddy. I love it. I love the back and forth. It's good for baseball. I love the Padres-Dodgers rivalry. The takeaway from this weekend's games which were phenomenal, no doubt, is that April games can lose you a pennant, but they cannot win you one. The importance of these games diminish like a carbon half-life as the season progresses and your team is in the race. It is great what these 12 further games will be between these teams. The Dodgers are clearly a better team. They have some bullpen issues. Who doesn't? Once in a while, they've got some starting pitching issues. Who doesn't? 
Once in a while, they have some slumps. Who doesn't? They've got plenty of superstars, plenty of depth to withstand the 162-game grind you just wait to see. The other thing that happened in baseball, people are in an uproar. One of the worst free agent signings that has happened in the last few years was the erstwhile great pitcher, Madison Baumgartner, going to the Arizona Diamondbacks. What did he get, Coca? I want to say 80 for four, some sort of outrageous salary. Now, this is Madison Baumgartner, who's still young, number one. He's got three World Series championships, number two. One of the most dominant pitchers in history with the San Francisco Giants. Dominant. Becomes a free agent. He gets $85 million for five years from the San Francisco, from the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Arizona Diamondbacks are then trading players away. They trade Paul Goldschmidt. They're sort of rebuilding. They're not. Then they're signing a great pitcher. But Madison Baumgartner is a clear middle of the rotation guy. For the Diamondbacks so far, he has been absolutely horse crap. Terrible. But the Diamondbacks, because of rain, because of COVID, who can keep track? I don't. There was too much else going on. They had to play a doubleheader. Doubleheader rules this year are the same as the COVID year last year. Two games, 14 innings total, seven each. In the eighth inning, you start the extra inning rule as though it were the 10th. I love that rule. And the reason I love that rule is doubleheaders are B for B, bad for business. You have to make player moves. As an executive, I hated doubleheaders because A, I don't want to be at the ballpark for 10 hours. B, I don't want to have to think about the pitching moves and the roster moves that have to be made after a game one if the game one starter doesn't give us innings. And then we have to use bullpen and you can't use bullpen for game two. And the game two starter may get shellacked, so you have to have reinforcements in. Now they let you call it the taxi squad. We used to cheat and just have, we did. Is this breaking news? Marlins and every other team keep players on standby at hotel for situations where they may be, need, may be needed and the flight situation does not give them time to get to a game before the game's being played. Oh my God, is that true? Oh my God, someone tweet that out. Samson cheats again. No, I'm just telling you exactly how teams operate. Don't you want to know that? Isn't that why you watch nothing personal? and listen to it, and download it, and follow it, and subscribe, and rate, and review, and ask questions. I think that's the reason. So Madison Baumgartner pitches a seven-inning game in a doubleheader where the Braves score a total of the light is on runs both games. Shut out both games. Do you get that, Coca? I bet you have no idea what that is because you're so physically fit. What the light being on means is them crispy creams or H-O triple T. The light is on, but you're not home. Your mind is not your own. Baumgartner, seven innings, no hits. No hitter. The third no hitter of this young season. With players who just get down on the knob, strikeouts are going crazy. We got records from Bieber. We got DeGrom striking everyone out and not giving up any runs. It's just an unbelievable time to be a great pitcher. And even Madison Baumgartner against a darn good lineup with the Atlanta Bravos gives up zero knocks. The debate begins. Third no-hitter. The Arizona Diamondbacks say, no, no. And their social media goes crazy. They're going to celebrate. But guess what? It's not a no-hitter. It's the end of the discussion. 
The rules are very clear in baseball. Remember the rule book that I carry around every game? I look through the rule book. Look what I see. Oh, yeah. A no-hitter is defined as a nine-inning game or more not giving up hits. Do you know what happens when you throw a nine-inning no-hitter, but you give up a hit in the 10th? Guess what? Not a no-hitter. Do you know what happens when you go eight innings without giving up a hit, but then give up a hit in the ninth? We're cutting to it live. Uh, That's not a no-hitter. Do you know what happens if you have a six-inning game that is cut short because of rain and ruled an official game? A rain-shortened no-hitter. God, I'm tired today. I was up so late watching Oscars and then post-Oscars and then working on the show. Where do I stand on this? Should a seven game, should a seven inning no hitter be just considered a no hitter? Well, let me think about the plain rules committee. The plain rules committee is a committee that meets underneath the competition committee. Any rule changes that go on have to be approved by the competition committee. Then they go to the plain rules committee. They make their suggestion. They don't have final say, but they come back to the competition committee with whether or not they agree that this is a rule change that should be done. The competition committee makes a suggestion of a rule change that has to go before ownership, full ownership. And that's then has to go before the union. Or you can just enforce the rule, have the union say, no, thank you, and then wait a year, and then it becomes a rule. As of yet, there is no such rule, and they've had a year. It's been a year, folks, when they started contemplating seven-inning doubleheaders. A year ago now was was the pandemic. It's still going on, but there was no baseball going on a year ago today. Today is April 26, 2021. So April 26th of 20, there was no baseball. They were meeting with the union, fighting over pay and number of games, having no idea when games would start. I believe the season started last year, July 20-something. And they came with an agreement to do double headers to make up games, loss for COVID, et cetera, because they wanted to get as many games in as possible. It all makes sense. Every part of seven inning double headers makes sense. Do you think they just didn't have time to address the rules for seven inning no hitters? Just never came up? Or do you think they just said, we're not going to deal with this because seven innings will not be a no hitter? We're going to keep them as nine inning no hitters. The union could have said something because players want no hitters on their resume. Owners could have said something because it's great for marketing to have a franchise that has no hitters. That's fun. Yet both sides said nothing. Now a 780 no hitter comes and people are up in arms. I'm a consequentialist, folks. If there's a rule that says a 780 no hitter is not a no hitter, it's just not a no hitter. There's no discussion. It's not as though people who make the rules don't understand that they could change the rules, take it to a vote and make a 780 no hitter an official no hitter. You know what? I just realized that a basketball hoop could be 10 feet, four inches. It could. There's people who could change those rules, but it's not. The mound may move back to 61 feet, six inches, or maybe not. Seven and no hitters, one day, maybe no hitters. But on April 25th, 2021, when Madison Baumgartner pitched a no-hitter for the Arizona Diamondbacks in the seven inning, game one of a doubleheader, or game two of a doubleheader, guess what? It's not a no-hitter. There's plenty of time to talk about all these things that go on during the course of a season. When is there time for all that? During the offseason. Do you know what teams do during the offseason? They spend the entire time thinking about their roster 
on the field, thinking about their ballpark off the field, thinking about what they're trying to accomplish both on and off the field, thinking about their roster flexibility, their payroll flexibility, thinking about what's going on with their sales, with their revenue, with their expenses, thinking about where players are in terms of their maturity. And I don't mean whether or not they like watching Nickelodeon. I'm talking about their salary maturity, when they're going to be free agents, what their expected payroll will be, salary will be in arbitration going forward. Dreaming of and writing down different lineups and having analytics go through different lineups, assuming health. It is a fool's game that we all do during the offseason because generally the decisions that you have to make are made during the course of the season when you see what's in front of you and what's actually happening versus what you projected to be ha to happen versus what the simulation said would happen because you had Aaron Judge hitting second for 10,000 games, and that was your best lineup, but then he's not hitting, so you want to move him down in the lineup, then Stanton's not hitting, you want to move him up in the lineup, then down in the lineup, and you're making a lot of tinkering during the course of a season while you're watching your team actually play. But the other thing that happens during the offseason is if you want to keep your job as president and GM, you are calling every other team's president and GM to talk about possible trades with players. There are no players who are off limits during the offseason. You could call on Mickey Mantle if you were in a, so inclined to try to get Mickey Mantle from the Yankees. You can call the Dodgers on Mookie Betts, even though he just signed that huge contract. You can call the Padres on Fernando Tatis. Teams do. And then a GM says the following. Nope. We're not talking about him. And you know what that means to a fellow GM? Sasquatch, nothing, squat. We keep a list. Wanna know what we do? We have a list of every player on every roster on every team. We keep notes next to that player and we keep call logs. Discussed with AJ Preller on April of 2019, Fernando Tatis, no interest. Thank you. July 31st. Spoke to A.J. Preller, asked for Tatis, no interest. Now, does that mean that Fernando Tatis is not going to be traded? Maybe. Maybe not. That's why you got to keep track. But once in a while, stories leak out. I like that. This weekend, a big story leaked out. Didn't get a lot of attention, and I don't know why. Aaron Judge is a New York Yankee. Do I have it right, Coca? Does Aaron Judge become a free agent after the 2022 season or is it after the 2023 season? I think he becomes a free agent after 22, so his free agency starts in 23. I think I'm right. I could be wrong. Help me, Coca. Help, help me, Coca. What? Yes, thank you. Aaron Judge. What do you think of Aaron Judge? Majestic. Great home runs. What a physical specimen. Superstar, face of the game. His picture is in lights at the Major League Baseball offices on 6th Avenue in New York City. In New York, Aaron Judge is the face of the game with Tatis and Mookie and Tim Anderson. Does that mean he can't be traded? What are the Yankees going to do with Giancarlo Stanton in the middle of a $300 million deal, which has six years remaining? 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, six years. Are they going to sign Aaron Judge to a $350 million deal? 
Is Aaron Judge worth that kind of money? From the Yankees' standpoint, if they are not speaking to teams about Aaron Judge and trading Aaron Judge, then that is malpractice. Of course, you go to a certain number of teams about Aaron Judge. You're not calling Jeter. They're not trading for Aaron Judge. You call Artie Moreno of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, who have the best player, theory, Mike Trout, a hugely highly paid, sought-after position player named Anthony Rendon. They're trying like heck to get pitching, but they never get pitching, so they're always trying to get more bats. Matching up Aaron Judge with Mike Trout. Hey, Artie, how amazing would that be? We're going to need some players back, no doubt. That's called a Tuesday between two Major League Baseball teams. But word gets out and everyone loses their marbles. They called it a brief flirtation. Do you know how many brief flirtations take place between teams regarding every single player? There's so many brief flirtations that you would think it's speed dating in the middle of the movie Hitch. Normal. It's fine. If I'm the Yankees, am I looking to trade Aaron Judge? Of course I am. He has not shown consistent performance ever. Tell me I'm wrong, folks. When he's hits, it's magic. You want to bet a 10-year, $400 million contract on Aaron Judge? How many World Series has he gotten you? Has he helped? He's been, remember him at the Home Run Derby in Miami, Coca? I mean, he's, we didn't have a ground rule for hitting the roof. I think I've told you the ground rule story, but very quickly, you have to have ground rules when you open a new ballpark. We opened Marlins Park. We went through the ground rules with MLB, with the umpires union, with the players union. We had ground rules for where balls hit, what's good, what's not. No ground rule for roof because we couldn't get anyone to hit a ball to the roof. It was never going to happen. The roof was way too high. Didn't need a ground rule. Batting practice during the home run derby, pre-home run derby, Aaron Judge hits the roof. I'm standing on the field. I look up and I say, to Mike Kill, did he just hit the roof? There's no way he hit the roof. I got Claude Delorme, the head of stadium operations next to me. Did he just hit the roof? What do we do? We then got the umpires together. We got Major League Baseball together because they're all there for the home run derby. And we said, I guess we need a ruling. And so we said, if you hit the roof at that part of the roof, we're going to call it a home run. If you hit it to this part of the roof, we're going to call it a foul ball. Got that, everyone? Made it up as we went along didn't even occur to us because of all the scientific studies we had. Does that make Aaron Judge a $400 million player? No. So for all of you Yankee fans out there, or Angel fans saying that you're upset that there's a flirtation or I can't believe there was a flirtation and now we don't have Aaron Judge. We could use Aaron Judge. Yankee fans are saying we're not going to trade Aaron Judge. Maybe we should trade Aaron Judge. Just know that there's not one player, including Derek Jeter, Andy Pettit, Mariano Rivera, Jorge Posada, Teams asked about every single one of those players and your GM listened to every possible offer that would come on every player of every team that's ever played hard stop. We'll be right back with the best picture winner. Hang in there. We got some Oscar stuff. You knew we would. Oscars last night. The Oscars. We'll be right back. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. 
Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. My name is David. You're joining us, however you're joining us. I don't even know how you're joining us. Do you? You're downloading, you're following, you're on Apple, you're on Spotify. We appreciate it. All the numbers count. Tell your friends about the show. Last night is a guiltless pleasure for me. It's guiltless because I love movies. I love award shows. I love being in the room where it happens, knowing I'm on the outside of the room. I love seeing people's dreams come true. I love the random awards. I love doing Oscar pools. I love making predictions. I love seeing what happens in a live event. I love the surprises. I love the snubs. I love the slam dunks. I love the jokes. I love it because I've got three hours and 15 minutes to allocate once a year to the Academy Awards. And I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not embarrassed by it. Remember, we had some predictions. Daniel Kaluuya, he won supporting actor for Judas and the Black Messiah. Yu Zhang Yun. Did you see her acceptance speech for Minari? We told you she would invest supporting actress. One of the great moments of the show, Brad Pitt is an executive producer of Minari. Brad Pitt presented the award because he won Best Supporting Actor last year for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So it was one of those magical moments that he is the one giving out the award for Supporting Actress. And it happens to be the winner is someone from a movie he executive produced. The woman who wins it is a legend in South Korea, been acting for two and a half score. She gets on stage and she says, hey, Brad, it's nice to finally meet you. Where were you doing filming? I always wanted to meet you. What a funny moment. Do you know that just because you executive produce a movie, it means that you're putting your studio or your money or your resources behind the movie. It doesn't mean you're on set. So she never met Brad Pitt. She may never even know until she sees the movie who the executive producers are to the extent that she even would see the finally edited cut movie. Many actors never watch the movies they're in. They film their scenes and they never see the full movie put together. Isn't that crazy? Best documentary, we nailed it. My Octopus Teacher, please see it. Someone said to me, you like a movie about someone having a relationship with an octopus? That's like saying I like a game about a wooden stick that somehow is being used to hit a circular object. Does that really explain to you why I love the rhythm of baseball? My octopus teacher. 
We told you best director would be Chloe Zhao, made history. Second woman after Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker to win best director. First woman of color. First Asian woman. Nomadland won best picture. How do I know that? Because best picture was named with two awards left. Best picture is the final award of the night. It's the biggest award. It's the most important award. Steven Soderbergh decided to produce the Oscars, which was great. They really did an interesting, very well done production job. But they tried so hard to be different. They thought that by having best actor at the end of the Oscars as the walk off award, that they would end the show with a tribute to Chadwick Boseman, who was favored not just in gambling, but everywhere that he would win best actor. So they decided, we know what we're going to do. We're going to do best picture early. And then we'll end it with best actress and then best actor. Nomadland wins best picture. People come up, producers. Francis McDormand gives a little talk. Chloe Zhao, another little talk. By the way, Francis McDormand is married to Joel Cohn. I'm not sure they could look any more miserable, but I assume that's all part of their shtick. Because you never know what goes on in someone's bedroom. You just never know. Best actress time. Frances McDormand, Nomadland. I thought it was going to be Andra Day. I thought Viola Davis. But it was really up in the air. Carrie Mulligan was great too. Vanessa Kirby, phenomenal. It goes to Frances McDormand. When I reviewed Nomadland, I told you this was the best movie of the year. I'm happy she won. Now we're getting ready to coronate Chadwick Boseman. I said to you that Chadwick Boseman, it is tragic that he died young, but he was not the best actor of the year, period. He was a nominee. He was nominee worthy, Elaine, but he was not Oscar worthy. Riz Ahmed of Sound of Metal was better. And then Anthony Hopkins, when I saw him in The Father, I said, this guy with his best performance since Silence of the Lambs, maybe the best performance of his career. But nobody was thinking anything other than Chadwick Boseman. Joaquin Phoenix, winner of Best Actor last year, comes on to do Best Actor again. Do I have that right, Coca? Or did the Best Actress from last year? I think, I think Renee Zellweger, who won Best Actress, did Best Actress. And I think that Joaquin Phoenix, who won Best Actor, did Best Actor. Sometimes they switch it around, but this year they didn't. So Joaquin Phoenix comes up. And when you end the Oscars, that's like Jack Nicholson territory. But Joaquin Phoenix is in that category. Doing Best Actor. We're about to get an unbelievable speech from Chadwick Boseman's widow, like she did at the Golden Globes. It's going to end the show on this amazing note. I'm in. Joaquin Phoenix gets the envelope, introduces the five nominees, and the Oscar goes to Anthony Hopkins, the father. Steven Soderbergh, the producer, had an anxiety attack. He dropped. No one knew what to do in the room because Anthony Hopkins wasn't in the room. Now, some people were in London and Australia and Italy, Paris. Anthony Hopkins was asleep in his jammies, nowhere to be found. Joaquin Phoenix says, the Academy is pleased to accept this award on Anthony Hopkins' behalf. Good night, everybody. And we're all sitting there, jaws open, mouth agape. I don't think that's the right word. Why am I blanking? What's the call when your mouth is sort of, ah, uh, 
God, I have moments like this. Do they happen on every day of the week or just Mondays? And then the Oscars ended. Don't screw with tradition. Best picture's got to be the final award of the night. I get it. You could end it with best actor, but you never know. Do you know who knows the winners before? I was always a cynical bastard. I always thought that they peaked. You got to peak. It turns out nobody peaks. It turns out the producers, the actors, the presenters, no one knows who's in the envelope except for those accountants. And those accountants are ready in case there's a mistake like there was a few years ago with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway when they announced La La Land as best picture, but it was really Moonlight. Remember that cluster? There were some firings after that. So the accounting firm knew that they weren't doing this. Wouldn't there be an opportunity for someone in the accounting firm to do a little wink, wink, nod, nod when they see the run of show and say, hey, I get what you're doing here. I just think we should stick with tradition. Would that be a giveaway? Would word leak out that Chadwick wasn't going to win? Nah, they could deny it. They could keep it tight. That is overshadowing Anthony Hopkins win, and it should not overshadow Chadwick's life or performance or his inspirational story. The fact is Anthony Hopkins was better. And I went with Chadwick Boseman because I thought that they would give it to him out of the death situation. I know better. I got to go with my gut when I'm making these picks because even when it, I assume that nobody is in agreement with me, I still should stick to my thoughts. I know just as much as any other voters. I watch them all. My heart wanted Riz Ahmed because I wanted him to win for that role. I wanted Sound of Metal to win Best Picture. It was my favorite picture of the year. I wanted Paul Rassi to win Best Supporting Actor over Daniel Kalula. I did. I, I have rooting interest during the Oscars. So to review, quite a few things went okay. You know, the in memoriam is always an issue, right? If I'm Brian Dennehy's family, I'm a little pissed. What I like about the in memoriam is I get to see some clippings of some actors who have passed away and I get to say every single year, oh my God, I forgot he died this year. Oh my God, I can't believe she died this year. Crap. That happens every year with in memoriam. This year, they went so fast through the in memoriam that you barely had time to read the names, but then they'd slow it down for certain people who died. There was a hierarchy in death. The more famous you are, you get a two-second pause. If you're not that famous, whoop, you better read quickly. You better DVR it and then play it on slow like you can do with this podcast. You can make it on half. I don't think I can do that on DVR. So that disappointed me. They sped through Brian Dennehy. They ended with Chadwick Boseman, correctly so. But they usually do clippings. Instead of doing clippings for nominated movies and for nominated actors and actresses, they gave a little nugget about each person, about where they came, trying to inspire those of us watching. You can do it. You can start off by getting coffee for someone and end up being in the room where it happens and getting an Oscar. Who among us doesn't know that hard work with the combination of luck Throw in a little skill and then a little dose of understanding when opportunity hits and what to do with it. Who doesn't know that that is the ingredient for success? 
Do we think that all of these actors and actresses and cinematographers and writers and directors are overnight sensations? By the way, congratulations to Aaron Sorkin for bringing Paulina Poroskova to the Oscars. Rick Ocasek's widow is now dating Aaron Sorkin. This is your gossip for the day. I think we all know that people who end up winning Oscars started somewhere. You're not born with an Oscar in your mouth, no matter what family you're born to. So those were the disappointments. Overall, Oscar season's over. I can't wait to watch more movies because we are under a year away. I don't even know when the Oscars are in 22, if they're going back to February, if they're gonna keep it in April. But for all of the people who follow nothing personal, we went through so many of these movies and I tell you when you're not wasting your time and don't listen to the haters saying the movies were bad, please. The Oscars are next February 27th, one day after my birthday, Coca. I guess that means my birthday's on a Saturday in 2022. That's gonna be a hell of a weekend. Coca, maybe we should go to California, hang out on the red carpet. Nah, not going to the red carpet till I'm invited. Nothing personal pick of the day. We had four picks for you last weekend, this weekend. We went two and two. To me, that's not good enough. We're now 54 and 38. We had Steven Matz over Tyler Glasnow on Friday. Did you watch the game between the Rays and the Blue Jays? And I told you that Steven Matz is not that guy for the Mets anymore. He's out of New York and pitching really, really well for the Blue Jays, who are a really, really good team. Well, if you did and you took Matz, you got yourself a win. And then I said the Knicks are HOT. They're getting a point from the Raptors. They got to be giving to the Raptors. They crushed them. We're 2-0. and I'm feeling great about the weekend. I got Bieber going against Cole. The Yankees can't hit even though they had won the game before six to three. I really felt like that was a baseball game I'm going to watch, which I did. The Yankees won two to one. Bieber and Cole had phenomenal games, but it's a loss. The Yankees ended up winning. And then we ended our weekend. (sighs) Do you remember I told you Patrick Corbin stinks? He's going to get taken out of the rotation. And then you told me, I understand that you think he stinks, but the reality is that he just had a great start and he's back. And then I told you, I must be wrong because Corbin got that big deal. I don't want to believe our evaluators were wrong when we wanted to trade for him and we thought that he was going to be a number one starter. He's been really good. He signed the big contract. The Nationals need a good start. I said, take Corbin. He's going to beat the Mets. It's a big game for the Nationals. The Mets are going with Walker, who's, you know, mediocre. He's fine, back-end guy. And I told you, just take him. Could I have been wrong about Patrick Corbin? Nope. I wasn't wrong and I didn't trust my gut and I had you bet the Nats and the Nats got crushed because Corbin absolutely sucks. Stinks. That brings us to two and two. Big game today. Pick of the day. When you draft a player in 2017, you say to yourself, you actually don't say it to yourself, 68, 6970. Big pick today coming up. When you draft a player in 2017, you say to your scouting director, when can we expect this player to be in the big leagues? And we're always told three, four, five years. I may be dead by then, we'd often hear from whoever. I don't even have a contract to go that long, we'd often hear. But that's the reality of drafting in Major League Baseball. It is a crapshoot. Am I going to sit here and gloat 
and tell you that Trevor Rogers was the final draft that I was a part of in 2017 before Jeter took over. And now Trevor Rogers is having what could be a rookie of the year campaign for the Miami Marlins, a huge part of a great young rotation, great moves made by the current owners by trading players who were great and taken by the previous owners. There is some sort of connectivity between ownership groups, no matter how much people want to not believe it. Trevor Rogers takes the ball today. Unfortunately, he's pitching against who is the likely Cy Young winner for April in the National League. Corbin Burns, remember him? The guy who has 40 strikeouts and no walks. The Marlins are on a trip. They're going to Milwaukee. They're at the Fister right now. They're avoiding ghosts and they're saying to themselves, how are we going to get to Corbin Burns? They're not. Pick of the day today, the Milwaukee Brewers, the first place Milwaukee Brewers, over the playing well, unbelievably great young pitching staff led team, Miami Marlins, with one of the great, exciting young players, Jazz Chisholm, who's now leading off who's now going to see that he's going to have to make adjustments because pitchers are now going to game plan against him. It's a great Monday night game. Brewers over Marlins. We got an interesting week coming up. I want to talk about what we're doing. Tomorrow is Tuesday, regular show. And Wednesday, I've got a surprise for you. I'm going to have a sit down with Pudge Rodriguez. The LCS MVP for the Marlins, the one-year sensation for the Florida Marlins in 2003, the one championship ring that Pudge Rodriguez has in his Hall of Fame career. And he sat down with me and Coca, and we spent 45 minutes, and it was glorious, and we're bringing it to you on Wednesday. On Thursday, it's another Samson sit-down back-to-back jacks. If you don't know who Joel Curry is, then you're making a mistake. He's not just an NFL salary cap expert. He's a former agent. And when I can talk to a former agent, you can bet your bippy that we're going to have some differences of opinion. I'm not the kind of guy who's doing gotcha journalism, but I'm not going to let someone say something about what glorious lives agents have and how good they are for their players. I'm going to bring something up about that. Joel Corey's Thursday, and we end the week because it's the end of the week. It's April 30th, 30 days, that's September, April, June, and November. All the rest have 31 except February, which has 28, except during presidential elections, in which case it has 29. April 30th, it's the mailbag episode. That's when you app rate on Apple, review, and put a question on Apple. If you don't have Apple, then you can tweet at me if you want it, David P. Sampson. We do a mailbag episode at the end of every month. April 30th. That's our week. That's the end of Monday. I hope you enjoyed baseball, the Oscars, health, the weather. And just remember, it's just business. This has been Nothing Personal. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. 
Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.